Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Good, right. If you have your Bible with you, whether it's this old fashioned paper kind or it's on your phone or tablet or I don't know what other ways you could have your Bibles, in your, in your mind, you may not have it in your heart. Well, yeah, good. Okay, Colin. There's always one, isn't there? It has to be a clever clogs. Good. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read 10 verses. That's verse 13 up until verse 23. But let me begin with a, a very short story. This week, on Friday, I will be 44. Now, most of you are saying, you look 54. No, 64. Any more? Any raise on 64? Now, the interesting part about that is it will mark 27 years since I began driving lessons. And I thought it's been nearly 30 years while I've been on the road driving a car. Now, while that is a little while ago, I remember the first time I was in the instructor's car and they come and pick you up. I think it was on my 17th birthday. As I remember it, my dad, who sat there leaning on his, um, his coffee table, he bought me some driving lessons for my birthday. And uh, the guy pulled up in a Nissan Micra. For those, do they still make the Nissan Micra? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, good. It probably didn't look like, it doesn't look like the one that I was driving at the time. Um, but you sit in, and they have these things called dual controls. And what that is there for is that the new driver, the learner driver, if they are a bit too enthusiastic or they make a bad decision, then the driving instructor can take the wheel or press the pedals. Now, that didn't happen too, too often for me. In fact, the only time I can remember it happening was on my first driving test. I passed second time. On my first driving test, I was about to pull into a yellow box junction without my exit being clear. And the driving instructor slammed on the brakes and said, you mustn't do that. And I, at that point, I knew I'd failed, and I had. But those dual controls are there to help protect the safety of those in the vehicle and those outside the vehicle. Now, let me apply this to the Christian life. When we become a Christian, we, in theory, hand the controls of our life over to Jesus. We say, you take the wheel. I think there's a song about that, Jesus take the wheel. But it's kind of like we want to be that person in the passenger seat with the dual controls that if Jesus starts doing something behind the steering wheel that we don't feel comfortable with, we like to feel the safety that we could press the brakes or turn the wheel in a different direction. So in theory, we say that Jesus is in charge of the direction and the speed and the destination of the vehicle. But in practice, there are many times when we feel ourselves going for the brakes because we don't like the direction that Jesus might be taking our lives. Now these verses I'm going to read to you here talk about Jesus being in charge and Jesus needing to have the authority to direct and take people's lives where he wants it in the context of something called lordship. Now, most of you don't use the word lord too, too often, 
but it's another way of saying master or boss. So when Jesus refers to being called Lord, he's talking about somebody who's seen as being in charge. So this is what it says in Matthew. He says to the people who are listening, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that will lead you to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit. But a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so that you'll recognize them by their fruit. Note this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will in fact enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? But I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, in this session today, I haven't got time to unpack all of those verses and do some sort of ex exposition or exegesis of those verses. But in essence, what I want us to take from those, uh, those verses about Jesus' teaching there, Jesus is saying the evidence of those who are really my disciples, the ones who are really in, the ones who are really on board with me, the ones who really, when they call me Lord, they mean it, they're the ones who actually do what the Father says to do. They obey the teachings of Jesus. So the evidence of true discipleship, the evidence of being a real and true follower of Jesus is seen, is evidence in somebody who practices the teachings of Jesus. That is the evidence. So lordship, if we say that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the boss, Jesus is our master, the evidence for whether that confession is true or not will be seen in whether we obey the teachings of Jesus or not. We can't say Jesus is Lord, he's the boss, he's in charge, he's in the driving seat if we don't practice the teachings of Jesus. There is a conflict there. It doesn't happen. So Jesus is saying this is how you can see those who are truly my disciples. My point from that is this, that we can say even then that Jesus is our Lord, but there still can be certain parts of our lives which we hold back on. We might say in principle, yes, you are Lord, but there can still be parts of our lives which we say, I still would like to retain ownership over this bit, however. But there are no buts with Jesus. If he's not Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all. And Jesus is saying that there needs to be a kind of sense of total ownership over our decision-making that is given over to him and his teaching. To illustrate this from a story from the um, early Middle Ages in the 12th century, actually, when the Knights Templar were formed and they've become famous in movies. I think they have appeared in 
an Indiana Jones movie and probably one or two others. Now these Knights Templar, this, this special group of elite knights that were put together for a kind of religious duty, the story goes that when the Knights Templar soldiers were baptised in the river, and it was kind of done more in rivers than in, they didn't have swimming pools in those days, that the knights were baptised, but they would hold their swords up above their heads. So when they went, go, went down into the water, their swords would remain above the water. The symbol of that being, you can baptise me, but I still want to use my sword however I need to in the fight. They wanted them to be, themselves to be baptised, but they wanted to wage warfare in a way that, they, that suited them. And that can be like so many of us, that we can get baptised into our relationship with Jesus, we can commit ourselves to Jesus, but we hold something above the water and say, you can have me, but not this. It might not be a sword, it might not be the way you fight, but it might be the way that you talk. It might be the relationships that you choose. It might be your finances. It will be something that you say... God, I want you, but I don't want you to have this. It's that passenger seat thing again. You can drive me in this direction up until a point I'm uncomfortable with it, and then I want to take back control. So God, he wants every part of us, and it might not be our swords, as I said, it might be our words, our thoughts, our relationships, our career choice, our finances, our emotions, our reactions, our personal interests and hobbies and pastimes. It's just things that we say to God, I still want to keep control of this. But if we say that Jesus is our Lord and we mean it, then we have to be prepared to release all of it to his direction. For me, uh, some years ago, the thing that challenged me that I didn't think God would particularly be too interested in was sarcasm. Now, if you were to try and define what my, my humour type was, it was very, very dry, I would describe it as, and quite biting, acerbic. And so I would look for a little part in a conversation where I could kind of take a little bit of a pop at the person. You might say it was just pulling their leg, but I think the person on the, the other end who was having their leg pulled felt sometimes it was a little bit more intense than me just pulling their leg. It was more like sticking a knife in. But I found pulling people's leg and sarcasm actually quite funny. Now, I don't feel that God has taken that completely off me. In fact, I live in a home with somebody who's a scouser, so you have to deal with a little bit of sarcasm. It's kind of part of the, the family culture. If you don't, you just get destroyed. So you've got to have something in your armament to kind of come back at people with. But I felt convicted that sometimes I took my humour too far, and it was funny to me but it came too much at the expense of the other person and I felt God challenge me and say to me, it's okay to be funny. Sense of humour is part of that thing that I give humanity to make life a little bit more bearable. But you can't just use it any way that you like and think that it's okay because sometimes someone's on the other end of that humour and they're hurt by that. And if what you've said has genuinely hurt them, you might sit there all piously and think to yourself, well, they shouldn't be such a softy then, should they? Sometimes maybe some people need to just, just feel a little bit more like they toughen up. 
But occasionally the responsibility is something that lies with us. Now my sermon of course isn't about sarcasm, I'm just trying to give you an example of something a couple of years ago I felt the Lord challenged me on. Sense of humour was kind of one of those swords that I held above the water and kind of retained ownership of. But if I say that Jesus is Lord, then every part of me is surrendered to him. So why do we struggle then? Why do we struggle? Sometimes it's ignorance. For me, sarcasm wasn't something I really thought too deeply about. I wasn't paying too much attention to my jokes as such, other than I was, of course, not wanting them to be smutty or anything like that. I just didn't really think about it. So it was an ignorance thing. But sometimes, sometimes it's just because we think we know best. And to our senses, to our thinking, to our understanding... What we want to do seems more logical than what we think the Holy Spirit is telling us to do. There's a story right back in Genesis about Adam and Eve, where all of the problems began and they stood in front of a tree that God told them not to eat from. The trouble was, when they looked at the tree, it says they, they saw that it was good and the fruit was good for eating. They had this conflict between what God said was wrong and what they, their senses seemed to suggest was very much acceptable. How were they going to resolve the conflict between God wanting to be Lord over their decisions, but their senses telling them that actually that, that decision didn't look too bad from where they were standing? And that epitomizes what we find often in the conflict that goes on within us. We know maybe through God's word, through scripture, that God says, don't do that. But it seems to us, by the measure of our own senses, our mind, our, our looking, our seeing, our understanding, that it should be fine. And it's often too late and we've gone far too far down the road to where there are big problems before we realise that life would have been easier if we'd just done it God's way from the onset. And life is often like that. We're taking roads and pathways that we have chosen because our senses have made the decision, our rationality has made the decision, our logic has made the decision, rather than God's instruction. Now, God is kind and he's gracious and he can work those pathways back. That's called repentance. It's getting back on the path that God originally chose for you. Repentance isn't simply about becoming a Christian and turning away from a life outside of a life with God. There can be little repentances that we do, or big repentances, where we're saying sorry for choices that we've made and wanting to get ourselves back on track with God. But if we to rely on our own senses and our own understanding and what we think and what we feel and what we want, we will end up taking pathways that will lead us in a wrong direction. Because actually, our thinking isn't quite as good as we often believe. There's this true story, a funny story, but a true story, about a guy called MacArthur Wheeler. In 1995, he was arrested by the FBI in America for a bank robbery. How did they find him? They looked on the CCTV cameras, CCTV cameras of the bank, and they saw his face clear as day on the CCTV. 
So they found him, facial recognition, they tracked him down and arrested him, and he was flabbergasted that they had found him. He said, what, that he said to them, I can't understand why you found me, because I wore the juice. They asked him what the juice was, and he said, I put lemon juice on my face. I read somewhere that it can work as invisible ink. <laughs> true, true story. He'd put lemon juice on his face and he assumed that the cameras couldn't see him. And he was arrested. This story caught the attention of two psychologists, one called David Dunning and another called Justin Kruger, who then looked into the phenomena of people doing dumb stuff. And they came up with a title for their findings called the Dunning-Kruger Effect. They, they sold a book in 1999 called Unskilled and Unaware. And this, this book became a bestseller. They managed to make this link, actually, that the lower your skill, the more your mind exaggerates your competency at, an, at a given task. So the more incompetent you are, the more your mind will want to tell you that you're actually competent at that thing. So we're all delusional to the point we justify our incompetence in different ways and tell ourselves that actually we're going to be really good at that thing when we're actually not really good at that thing. And actually the people that are really good at that thing tend to underestimate their ability and think they're going to be poor at it because they know more. So the less you know, the more deluded you are and the more likely you are to overestimate your skill. And the trouble with that is then you have a lot of people having a go at stuff that are the least qualified and the least skilled for the job. Look at politics. So for many of us, we have to have the humility to think that actually just because I think it, just because I feel it, just because it seems right to me, I may actually be wrong. Maybe I need to phone a friend. Maybe I need to talk to somebody. Maybe I need to ask a few more questions. Maybe I need to spend a little bit more time with God in prayer about this. Particularly when we feel he's asking me to do something which seems illogical to me to do. Go back to the story of God bringing the people of uh, Israel into what was described as the promised land. They come up to a city called Jericho. He doesn't say get the soldiers, he says get the worshippers. What army in their right mind wants to get the worshippers when they've got to bring down walls of a fortified city? If they worked on their own understanding and they went in with swords and spears, then they would have got defeated. The only way that they could overcome the obstacle was through worship and obeying God's commands. It was an illustration to them that the only way you're going to go forward in life with great success as a believer in God is to follow his instruction when it, even when it seems to be stupid to your senses. Because following God is about trusting his wisdom, believing that he has your best interests at heart, believing that his ways are always going to be higher than your ways, and even when there's nothing in you that can understand it, you do it anyway because he said it, it's going to be right. So lordship is about bringing our obedience, bringing our decision-making, bringing our lives and our choices in complete obedience to God and his direction, even when everything else in us may be screaming no. But it's when we do that and we get to prove the wisdom and the knowledge of God over against our own wisdom and understanding 
that we're actually being sincere, that when we call Jesus Lord, we mean it. And we're not one of those people who say, oh, we call Jesus Lord, and he says to us, I never really knew you. That was just you giving lip service to me. There was no substance to that. That's not the position that we want to be in. Okay, so finally, how do we apply that then? Because it even if we are not ignorant about a situation or a decision as, as, as a point of understanding about what God wants, and even if we've chosen to suspend our own feelings and thoughts on a subject and bring ourselves into obedience to what God wants, sometimes just doing the right thing is hard. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to turn to it now and read it. Paul says, For I do not understand what I do, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Basically he's saying, there are times inside me, I know what's right, I know what's the thing to do, but I don't do it, even though I know I ought to do it. He goes on to say, so now I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin living in me. He's saying that there is a, there is a nature, there is a, a proclivity within him and within all of us that actually wants us to do the very thing that God doesn't want us to do. So there is this internal conflict, there is this, more than a tension, it is a conflict, this battle going on between one part of ourselves that says, yeah, do it, do it, do it, we're Adam and Eve in front of the tree again, going, yeah, everything looks fine. But my conscience says, no, what am I going to do? And Paul was aware of that. The guy was a guy who had his life together. He had all of his ducks in a row. But he just knew that in in his own mind and heart, there were times when he wanted to go in one direction and God's will wanted to take him in a different direction. So what do we do? What do we do when we know the right thing to do? We have decided to defer to God's plan rather than our own agenda, but it's just hard to make it happen. Well, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8 that the antidote to the proclivities of the human heart and mind that want to take us in a wrong direction is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of God in us by his presence in us and Dave's talked about it today as he anchored it so well this morning about we can't skip over God's presence. Why? Because if you skip over God's presence you skip over the solution. The solution to what? The solution to living in God's will and plan. Because unless you live with something operating in you that is stronger than the spiritual desire to go against God, then you will end up going with that thing that has the greatest power and influence over your life. If sin and the voice of sin in your life is the strongest voice and the greatest pull in your heart, then you will find yourself so often going in that direction. But a life yielded to the Holy Spirit where God's voice through his spirit is the greatest force and the greatest compelling factor in your life, then you will find yourself going with that because that is stronger than the sin in you. Paul's recognising the helplessness of all of our lives to call Jesus Lord and obey him as such 
without the work of the Holy Spirit because there is a force in us called sin that wants to take us in a different direction. You in your mind may say Jesus is Lord, but the sin in the proclivity of your heart says, yeah, but don't do what he says. And without the work of the Holy Spirit, you are going to be often defeated more than not when you come to a decision that your heart says one thing, and your mind says something else. A life that's cultivating the work of the Holy Spirit will intensify your ability to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. A life without the Holy Spirit is going to be forever at the mercy of whichever pull in them is strongest at that time. You try to do the right thing without the work of the Holy Spirit and see how long it takes for you to end up doing the wrong thing a little bit later. Because your desires and your affections are constantly seeming as though you are wading upstream with desires that are pulling you the other way. I'll finish with this illustration. Um, a guy called David Allen, he was one of our lecturers at Bible College, and uh, he's gone to be with Jesus now. But he talked about the life of the Holy Spirit in this way. He said, if anyone has ever played crown green bowls. Now, let's have a little bit of participation. Crown green bowls, anyone? Showing your age. Even you, Barry, yes. Maybe it's not an age thing. Maybe it's just like one of these new sports that's just multi-generational and you've just stereotyped it there. So in crown green bowls, you think it would be quite simple. You've got this jack ball, this white ball that is thrown down the green, the grass, and you have to get your ball closest to the jack ball in order to win. Simple concept, simple. The trouble is that there is a bias within the ball that wants to pull the ball in a direction that isn't straight. So unless you try and compensate for the bias, the ball will go off track. But he says there is one way to overcome the bias that isn't therefore down just to your skill to try and spin it or twist it or turn it. And he says that's power. He says if you put enough power on that ball, it will go in a straight line. Wonder what bias is in there. If the power to move it forward is greater than the power to move it sideways, it will go forward because that's where the power is taking it. And he says our lives are often like those crown green bowls balls. They have this bias in them. You can't see it by looking at it. You look at a crown green bowls ball. It looks just like a ball. It's black, it's heavy, it's round. But there's a bias in it that is going to take effect unless you do one of two things. You find the skill to work around it or use the power to work through it. And what God does and what he says, I believe, through Romans 7 and uh, Romans 7 and 8, he says there is a bias in you that wants to pull you off direction. And unless you have enough power in your life, you are going to be forever frustrated that the ball doesn't go to where you want it to go. You'll decide that the jack's up there and you'll find the ball is over there. For those who are listening on the podcast, I was moving my fingers in two very different di directions then. There needs to be some other force at work to compensate for the bias. So in closing, Jesus' lordship is not an optional thing. There can't be parts of our lives who, like the Knights Templar, we hold those things above the water and deny Jesus jurisdiction over those things. 
But even if we know what to do, or we've decided to do what God wants to do, even though we might likely not want to do it, unless we have a life yielded to the Holy Spirit, we're going to find it so, so hard to make good on that confession that Jesus is Lord. But if we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we'll find ourselves far less yielding ourselves to the things that want to take us off track. Let's pray. Maybe just have a think now what it is maybe in your life that's been that sword that you've held above the water. Maybe the Holy Spirit is challenging you right now in some area of your life that you have still yet to, to yield to Jesus. And Jesus wants you to bring that under the water. He wants to bring it into submission. Submission is not a bad word when Jesus is the person to whom you're bringing it into submission. That will bring you victory, not defeat. Or maybe it's just something that you have in principle brought under the water, but you struggle to keep it there because there's something in your life that fights against keeping that sword under the water. Maybe it's a financial thing, a circumstantial thing, a relationship that you just can't let go of, a mem- something that you feel that in principle you've submitted it to the Lordship of Jesus, you want to do it his way, but it just doesn't stay his way for very long. I want to pray that God will help you this morning by his Holy Spirit to get the final victory in those areas. It's only by his Holy Spirit that we can make lasting change. Heavenly Father, I pray for every aspect of people's lives in this room or those who are listening by podcast who who know of something that they've held like those Knights Templar swords above the water that should have been brought under the water. I ask that God you help them to recognize what those things are. Maybe it's something they've never thought of before but you help them to bring those swords into submission to you to make sure every part of their life is fully surrendered to your lordship, that you're the boss, that you take the wheel. And wherever people may have done that in principle, but in practice find that so hard, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will give them the victory, give us the victory, give me the victory, give all of us the victory over those proclivities, those tugs upon our heart that want to take us in our direction that your word calls sin, doing things that your word calls us wrong, Help us to do them right, according to your word, that we can not only confess you as Lord, but we practice everything that you say that we ought to practice and do all that you say that we are to do. Help us, God, we pray. As we come to you in prayer, help us bring action, bring power that we can live as you have called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.